2: there's something wrong. It's wrong with the instructor. This ain't reality TV. Respect it and validate it. Remember that's what you told me. It's time, Robbie. Welcome to the Next Best Picture Podcast. It's time. Hello, everybody. This is the first episode of the Next Best Picture Podcast. I am your host, Matty Negs, otherwise known as by my real name, Matt Neglia. You may know me from another podcast slash website known as NegsBestThing.com. That has now gone away. It has changed. It is out of here. Sayonara, sucker. We have now morphed into NextBestPicture.com a film website that details the award season race. And also, we do our weekly reviews here. This week, we're going to be looking at The Light Between Oceans, the new film from Derek Cienfranc. Uh, You guys may know him from Blue Valentine, as well as The Place Beyond the Pines. So, pretty, pretty excited here, but I'm not alone. No, joining me today, I've got two people, contributors of NextBestPicture.com, I've got Will Mavity and Michael Schwartz. Let's get Will out here first. Will, how you doing today? Doing fantastic, Matt. Thanks for having me on. It's good to be part of this. Absolutely. This is going to be a lot of fun, for sure. Uh, you know, you and I, we interacted a couple of times through Twitter, actually, talking about film, the award season race, and then I just casually one time just asked you to come on to my old show, Neg's Best, uh, Neg's Best Film Podcast, and we talked about money monster game of thrones some other movies as well and since then it's just been awesome collaborating with you and also just taking a minute or two to talk about film every now and then i mean you're fantastic i'm glad to have you on board uh tell people where they can find you on twitter really quick so you can follow me at mavericks movies on twitter i'll have test
0: screening reactions the latest rumors, casting notifications, etc., etc., as well as general opinions and bits of film history. So yeah, please give me a follow. I regularly interact with Matt and I'll also be contributing blog posts throughout the year.
2: Sounds awesome, man. And also joining us right now is Michael Schwartz. Michael, welcome. Hi, thanks for having me. So people may remember Michael from my review of Kubo and the Two Strings and War Dogs. All the old Next Best Film podcast episodes are in the archive on nextbestpicture.com. Michael, tell people where they can find you on Twitter.
1: You can find me on Twitter at MikeMovie, that's one word. And I like to talk about the Oscars, film itself, uh, anything in the entertainment industry or just whatever happens to cross my mind. I'm happy to be on the podcast today and see where this Oscar season takes us.
2: Ah, man, it's going to be a lot of fun for sure. And so far, the season is shaping up to be pretty exciting right now. We've uh, passed through Venice. Telluride right now is happening. we got TIFF coming up, New York Film Festival. There's a lot of excitement happening currently right now. But let's first get to uh, a couple bits of pieces in regards to the festival circuit right now. I just want to say, too, that
1: So many people over the years have been wishing this for me, strangers, you know, I go, i went walking in the street, people say something to me,
2: I go in a doctor's office, I go in a, whatever, elevators, people saying, I wish you should win, you should win, I go for an X-ray, you should win one. Billy Lynn's long halftime walk, right? This is set to premiere at the New York Film Festival. I, myself, being in New York, am dying to see this movie. I'm going to try and get there. I know it's going to be really tough to get a seat at that showing, but I'm going to work my tail off to make that happen. Anne Thompson recently wrote an article about the technology of this film and what it's going to mean for everybody when they watch it. It's being said that it's 3D without the glasses. I mean, like, what the hell does that even mean? Yeah, as best we can
0: understand, they shot it in 120 FPS, which, if you'll remember, Peter Jackson ill-fatedly tried to shoot the Hobbit trilogy at 48 frames per second. So this would be far and away the fastest projection we've ever seen on screen. And I guess we're supposed to assume somehow or another it can trick our eyes into seeing the kind of depth on screen that you normally only get with polarized 3D lenses. I can't imagine how it's going to work. It's certainly a gamble. It sounds like the kind of thing that could cause motion sickness. But if it does work, it would be one of the most groundbreaking things done in cinematic history, the kind of thing you get a special achievement Oscar for. And if anyone can pull it off, I think it would be Ong Lee and, of course, the always wonderful cinematographer John Toll.
2: You know, it's interesting that you say it like that, too, because I work in a mall and there's a Sony store nearby and I could see these 4K TVs that are just massive. And when you get up close and you see how realistic the picture looks and how it literally feels like it's right there in front of you, I can't even imagine. I can't. What it's going to be like being in a theater on a big screen to see a picture with that same effect, because that, that that to me is what it sounds like it's going to be like.
0: And it's an interesting subject to do that for. I mean, you have the first act and some of the flashbacks are set in the Middle East during wartime sequences, and you have a flashy halftime show itself, but a lot of it is a very domestic film. You know, it's set in office rooms and people's houses it's not really the type of film you would necessarily think of even for 3d on its own so i'm kind of fascinated that lee chose to try this technology out on this but if he can pull it on a domestic set film like this then who knows what that does for the industry or it ends up as a devastating flop and Lee goes back to the drawing board but i'm fascinated to see where that goes i mean that's that's earth-shattering potentially
1: Yeah, I'm looking forward to it also, especially for that halftime scene that I don't know how much of the movie it takes up, but just the rush of energy and the lights and everything going on around you is overwhelming when you're at one of those games. So to be able to see it projected on a screen in this format sounds very exciting.
2: Yeah, I mean, the way I understand it is that the halftime scene is sprinkled all throughout the movie with flashbacks laced in between. So we'll have to see if that's how the adaptation comes across. I, I don't know about you guys, but first time screenwriter, if I recall, uh, adapting the uh, the book here, Christoph um, something. I can't remember the guy's name. John Costelli, I believe. Christoph John Costello. Yeah, gotcha. John Costelli Christoph. All right. That's, that's going to definitely be a mouthful come uh, Oscar time if he ends up at these award shows a little bit. But regardless of which, we'll have to see just how it it works. I, I mean, Ang Lee has taken films that quite honestly have not really worked on the page, but he somehow made them work on the screen before. Um, minus Hulk. A uh, Minus Hulk. <laughs> but even Hulk had some kind of ambition, you know. I hate that movie,
0: but you have to admit it didn't work, but you got to credit the guy for trying to do the four split screen comic book panel look. And, you know, I, I respect him for trying to turn a movie about a character whose sole attribute is that he's very good at smashing things into an introspective character drama. Terrible idea, but I respect the ambition. And I don't think there's a lot of directors who would have been willing to try that. So, you know, give Ang Lee props for that, too. I would rather watch Hulk
1: again than any of the current Marvel movies, just because there's more going on under the surface in terms of creativity, I think, than anything else we see now. So, yes, I do respect him for
2: that. Damn, harsh, harsh criticism there against Marvel. Um, Well, speaking of the opposite, let's say, of harsh criticism right now, the big premiere, at Venice, and also premiering at Telluride as well, that wowed audiences everywhere. I mean, just floored them. La La Land. Damien Chazelle's Whiplash follow-up, starring Ryan Gosling and Emma Stone. What do you guys make of this? Is this our early frontrunner?
0: So, it'll be interesting to see on that. I know Sasha Stone, who runs Awards Daily mentioned at for, before seeing the film i know after its venice reactions she was afraid that like many films that are pronounced front runner early in the season it was going to get become the victim of its own hype and have people decide it's under it's underwhelming when they finally see it but she says it's the type of film that is immune to hype you're immune to the crippling damage overhype can do and I'm hearing things saying it has one of the best opening shots of all time and is the antidote to cynicism. You know, uh, Ampest loves a good musical. And if this can be pulled off well, I think this thing could be huge across the board. Absolutely. And these are some glowing reactions.
2: Yeah, I mean, people have also praising the ending as well from what I've been hearing. And they say that it packs the same kind of punch that Whiplash did. Uh, were both of you guys fans of Whiplash?
0: Uh, I personally was. It was my favorite film of 2014. I left the theater shaking after that finale. I uh, recall you were not, Mike.
1: I liked it the first time I saw it, and I think that finale had a lot to do with it. You're just on the edge of your seat the entire time. That when I started to go back a couple weeks later and think about it, I liked a lot of the technical and filmmaking aspects to it, and I really loved J.K. Simmons' performance for which he won an Oscar. But thinking about some of the Ways that the screenplay worked and story beats, it just seemed a little silly to me later on. But I do respect what Damien Chazelle was doing and was hoping for his follow-up to be something worth talking about, which it certainly seems like this is. Hmm.
0: Well, the raw directorial skill on there, I mean, just, I guess people described it as kind of the uh, the first-time filmmaker, though I know he wasn't a first-time filmmaker, vibe he had, choosing just dozens and dozens of camera angles to incorporate I don't know, that kind of raw energy I don't see in a lot of directors. So I'm hoping for that with this. And also this looks to be much less cynical than Whiplash was. Sure. Which I think will be nice because Whiplash, though it feels triumphant, is kind of a bleak film if you think about it.
2: Yeah, it is. I mean, you got J.K. Simmons just – laying into this poor kid throughout the movie and you know this kid is really sacrificing everything that he's got to pursue his dream and it's it's hard to watch at times you know to see him try so hard and then just get you know knocked down a couple of pegs by jk simmons over and over and you're just watching and you're thinking man this this guy is a huge asshole like Because we're so used to a society where, you know, you get an attaboy, you get a pat on the back, you get a good job. And J.K. Simmons is the exact opposite of that. He expects nothing but perfection. And if he even thinks that you have an ounce of that in you, he'll push you to get there. And the means in which he does so are questionable by some, but there's no doubt that he pushes Miles Teller to get there in that film. I I think it's a brilliant movie, and it's my personal favorite film of that year. Really? Yeah, for objective reasons, uh, Boyhood is my number one for that year. But Whiplash is, personally, subjectively speaking, my, my favorite film of that year, easily.
1: Okay, well, what I will say about La La Land is that the musical genre is my favorite. I love the classic ones like Singing in the Rain or the Bandwagon. Mm-hmm. And I just, when a musical comes along, no matter if it's original or based off a Broadway musical, I'll go see it.
2: Yeah, I mean, why wouldn't you?
1: So that what I hear that this one is an original I was a little skeptical at first, and when I saw the trailer, The City of Stars, with Ryan Gosling singing last year, or last month, I thought, I was expecting something a little bit more in the vein of Singing in the Rain that's more glamorous and glitzy, so I didn't really know what to think when I saw that, but recently we had a new trailer with Emma Stone singing a song, I think it was called... Audition. Audition, yeah. Audition, yes. And a lot of people who have seen the film at these festivals are saying that could be her key Oscar scene.
2: It does. It, it strikes like a, a feeling of like melancholy while, I, while I'm while i watching it. It just seems very somber and it doesn't seem very upbeat, you know, but yet everybody is telling me though that the film is lighthearted. It's feel good. And it's the kind of film that gets you standing and clapping on your feet by the end. And, you know, we know for a best picture winner nowadays with the uh, preferential ballot voting for the consensus vote, That's very, very important.
1: A Best Picture winner needs to be able to play at home to the entire family over the holidays, specifically over Thanksgiving when everybody's together. Mm -hmm. So I think this film, if it's as light and upbeat as people are saying, could be a huge crowd pleaser for the whole family.
2: So based on what you said just now, um, I'm going to just ask you guys really quickly what wins Best Picture in 2007 with the preferential voting? Because No Country for All Men does not strike me as the film that you watch with your family over the holidays.
0: Well, 2007 was a bit of an anomaly, I have to say. Um, I think that year for film generally just created some pretty edgy films, and I think Ampus was in an edgy mood. I think if anything would have beaten it under that voting system, it would have been Atonement because that was more of a classic ampass film, but that's not exactly an upbeat holiday film either. No, no. I think yeah, it would have been No Country or Atonement regardless.
1: Yeah, I think No Country still takes it just as a way to reward the Coen brothers who have been overdue for so long by that point.
2: Yeah. And they're not going to get any recognition this year for Hail Caesar no, of course anyway. Not.
1: That's very sad because Hail Caesar is still one of the finest films I've seen this year.
2: Uh, it's definitely one of the better ones, but it's not for me, it's not upper-tier Cohen's, It's middle-tier Coen's for uh, me. See,
1: I would put it in my top five, honestly. Oh, wow. Of <sighs> Cohen, in the Cohen canon. Yeah, it's pretty
2: rough. Speaking of um, you know, respected filmmakers right now, we talked about La La Land premiering at Venice Telluride, uh, definitely wowing everybody. Arrival landed as well. And this is a new film from Denis Villeneuve starring Amy Adams in the lead role. And from what I've been hearing... I've been hearing this is like one of the best sci-fi films since inception uh, as far as, you know, like a thinking man's blockbuster film, so to speak, with Amy Adams getting all of the praise and all of the kudos for the most part. Like even people that hate the film still say that she's pretty great. So do you guys think that Denis Villeneuve's career trajectory, he's been turning out really excellent work based on his mood and his atmosphere that he creates for his films. Do you think he's heading for his first Oscar nomination here?
0: You know, the film ultimately ended up being a little more divisive, it looked like, as more reviews came out. You know, the first batch that dropped were just borderline rapturous. Um, It's going to have its detractors, and it sounds like it's definitely kind of slowly and ponderously paced, which means the masses may not flock to it. And a sci-fi film, for the most part, needs really good box office to be a big contender, but I think it's going to, if he doesn't get a Best Director nomination, he's going to be at number six or seven. I think he's definitely a contender.
2: I will say this. It's sitting on Rotten Tomatoes right now, 13 reviews at 100%. Yeah, no, I mean, that's, that's impressive.
0: Some of the positive ones are more like the B-minus territory, I think. But for the most part, extremely well received. Uh, what do you think, Mike? I don't
1: know that he would get his first nomination for this. Because as great as the reactions were, a lot of reviews are saying that the film is a little bit chilly and may not be up the alley of Amphis voters. Mm. So even if this doesn't do it, I think it definitely pushes him more in the right direction towards one day getting that type of nomination.
2: Okay, well what about Best Picture at least?
1: Best Picture? You know, it's hard to say. Only a handful of people have seen the film. And again, while they like it, they say it might be a little too cold for the average voter. Mm -hmm. so i'm not ready to discount it by any means but i don't necessarily have it up in the top five of our top contenders
2: okay i mean no and i don't either i've got it more so towards the bottom but amy adams i think that i think she could be heading for her sixth nomination with this not a win though, but i definitely feel that ampus loves her so much i mean she's got five nominations already Uh, i think that she's uh, if the film opens up well and get does good box office, I think she's in. Yeah, no, I
0: think she, and I think that, I do think this film will generally be more accessible to Ampus than Nocturnal Animals. I think both of those films may miss Best Picture nominations, but both could get in for screenplay nominations. And from what I've read, this is more of the role Adams could get in for. It's a very sympathetic-sounding character, and it sounds like she fully inhabits it. And let's be honest, Adams has had some great roles, but she's also had several where she didn't have to do much and she still got in. As you said, Matt, the Academy loves her. So I think it's a real possibility that uh, that Venice has given us two of our certain Best Actress nominees, certainly in the form of Emma Stone from La La Land, we said, and also in the form of Adams.
2: So there's more to all of this. I mean, Venice and Telluride have really, at this point, uh, man, they've just given us such quality contenders that I'm waiting for something to drop out at this point and just be a complete misfire. Because not only did La La Land and Arrival open up to... Like you said before, pretty rapturous uh, applause and uh, critical acclaim. But Moonlight and Sully, Sully, the film that I didn't even think was going to do well with people because, quite honestly, Clint Eastwood's just been very hit or miss for me. Even when he had that successful year with American Sniper, I still wasn't high on the film. So, I don't know, maybe Eastwood's just not my kind of director, really. I think the last film of his that I really, truly enjoyed was uh, Letters from Iwo Jima. I suppose. Oh, that's going
0: back a while. I would say, yeah, 10 years ago was the last time I really loved an Eastwood film. Yeah.
1: No, that's, that's funny because my favorite Eastwood film out of his entire career is Changeling.
2: Oh, that's a good movie. I, I, I think that movie's very underrated. My
1: two favorites are Changeling and then one a couple years after that, Hereafter.
2: I hated Hereafter.
1: Really? Yeah. yeah I wasn't a big fan of that one. Oh, I, was, I found it incredibly moving and just very tender work from him that you don't see all the time. I think that's a very special movie.
2: Yeah, I I don't think it's a special movie whatsoever. But there are those that are saying that Sully is. And a lot of that has to do with Tom Hanks, who missed out on that Best Actor nomination for Captain Phillips, which I tweeted a lot about recently. Because, quite frankly, that just appalled me the year that that happened. So are we looking at Tom Hanks entering back into the Best Actor conversation again with Sully? Possibly. Possibly. Yeah, I
0: think he's been at number six or seven for his last two big films. Because I think given how... And I think the same voters that really loved Bridge of Spies, which I I really like Bridge of Spies too, will really like Sully too, because it's kind of classic traditional filmmaking. And I think he was number six or seven both in... He was definitely number six probably in 2013. And I think last year he was probably just outside best actor, um, given how much they like the film as a whole. So yeah, I think we got to see where some of the other contenders go. You know, we got to see how Nate Parker's acting is going to withstand his current controversy. We've got to see how overall Casey Affleck has received for Manchester by the sea.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, but yeah, I think H- Hanks is safe to say at the very least, he is a contender and he will pop up throughout the season everybody loves Tom Hanks. You know, who doesn't like Tom Hanks? And to draw a connection
1: between Hanks and what we talked about earlier, La La Land, what we have this year outside of the film world is with this election cycle that we're going through, a lot of people are very cynical towards the news today. So that when you have a film like La La Land come along that's very light and airy, and then you have a film like Sully where Tom Hanks plays a character who's very heroic and doing the right thing, it's nice to have that type of upbeat character in cinema today that, depending on what's going on in the news as voting is happening, people may feel more inclined to go for that type of character performance.
0: Oh, well, Hacksaw Ridge, which we'll get to in a second, also definitely fits that definition. That's like the definition of upbeat. But yeah, I, I agree with that. I mean, I think just in general... Um we have become so cynical and also the way we approach awards season has been cynical that we might have kind of a reactionary year in what Ampus really goes for.
2: It's gonna be it's gonna be tough and you know, I, I don't think anybody was as shocked as I was. Maybe maybe you will. I, I I don't know, maybe all of us for that matter, that Hacksaw Ridge got some positive reviews. Uh, upon its release,, uh, what was it? just last night?
0: Yeah, it, it premiered at Venice last night. So I guess I can say this now. I saw Hacksaw because it's premiered. I saw Hacksaw Ridge a few months ago and didn't expect it to be really huge with critics or with the award scene. Um, and it, you know it's it's a very kind of old-fashioned, optimistic film that I guess kind of embrace embraces the cheesier sides of it and its cliches. But critics raved it, you know, and people acknowledge some of its cheesier aspects and still really dug it. So I, you know, I I saw it and I was very impressed with Andrew Garfield once you got used to his accent. Uh, Same goes for Hugo Weaving, who plays his dad in the film. You know, once you can get past their accents, they both give pretty good performances. So that's another film it's very much old-fashioned upbeat filmmaking something that would have been out of wouldn't have been out of place at all in the 1950s and if we're in kind of a reactionary year for films that can play well to Ampas who wants something more upbeat hacksaw ridge although it's incredibly gory is definitely a film that could do that and i also want to say if it does that um Perhaps it could be a contender in the sound categories where it boasts sound design by the single most nominated sound mixer in history without a nomination. That is Kevin O'Connell, the man who probably decided what your childhood sounded like as far as sound design goes. 20 nominations, not a single win. And I think there's a good chance he'll get nomination 21 for this film. So yeah, I will be interested to see where that goes,
2: yeah. I will be too, just because Mel Gibson is such a polarizing figure as is. A lot of me thinks that the critical acclaim for this film might be a little bit of a um all right. We've, we we've we've knocked you down. We've kept you in the dark long enough. Welcome back, Mel Gibson, sort of a, you know, feeling. maybe, maybe the academy won't respond to it, but at least he turns out something that is, respectable, and kind of gets him back in good graces with uh voters, the community and, in general. Who knows? I, I heard from many people that it might possibly be his goryest film, but contradictory to that, in many ways, like The Passion of the Christ was a very gory film, but still with an upbeat message. Um, This, too, has that. So it's unbelievable to me that he strikes that balance uh, time and time again. Obviously, we've seen it with apocalypto we've seen it with braveheart the the guy just seems to really hone in on this bloody gory violent chaotic you know world that he creates in his films and i i i don't know it, to me it seems like it's a negative but then he throws in uh you know something into the story of the characters to make them more human and make the film very humanistic so It will be very interesting to see how it plays. Uh, Mike, do you have any thoughts on this one? I'm not necessarily
1: Mel Gibson's biggest fan. Even Braveheart, which I could appreciate on a technical level, is not really a favorite of mine. But that being said, I'm looking forward to seeing what he does here. I think it's an interesting story. And that he's uh, done his time, he's been in the dark enough, as you say, that I think he deserves his second chance to sort of come around and show people his skill as a filmmaker. Mm. So I'm not sure if it's going to necessarily hit with awards, but it could be a film worth seeing this November.
2: Sure. And then we also had Nocturnal Animals from Tom Ford that dropped recently as well. Michael Shannon, um, uh, Amy Adams, Jake Gyllenhaal. Uh, you know, this this film, the follow-up to A Single Man starring Colin Firth, which I, I thought was a very startling debut. I, I really really enjoyed that movie a lot. Didn't make my top 10 that year, but I really enjoyed it. It's a gorgeously shot film. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I've heard that he's exceeded that here from a storytelling uh, level as well as what he also pulls off aesthetically as well. So... That one's going to be very, very interesting to see how that develops as well as the season rolls on. It's a little bit still of an anomaly. We really don't know much about it as far as how it's going to play. And will you alluded to that a little bit before with uh, Amy Adams? Is she going supporting for that? If so, will she she be double nominated? It's there. There's a lot of ways that this one could go. This could just be the art house film that doesn't really catch on at the box office, and you know, just it's one of the best reviewed films of the year, and it just kind of was there. You n- you never know, right? With these uh, with these festival films, really quickly though, I just want to go back because we didn't really get a chance to really just talk about it. Uh, Moonlight. Do you want to talk about films that got some amazing feedback? Moonlight got like best of the year kind of feedback from what I saw at least. Moonlight. I mean,
0: I read some reviews calling it quote unquote one of the most important films ever made. And, you know, it's, it's sitting at a 100% on Rotten Tomatoes with a 10 out of 10 average, which I'm not sure I've ever seen, although it only has like 10 reviews. But still, and then it also has 100 on Metacritic. I mean, literally, that means no one gave it less than an A-minus, basically. Just stellar reviews. And I think, um, you know, in reaction to the Oscar so White controversy of the last two years... This is a film, it would be really interesting, that I think could fill that void. You know, you have Naomi Harris, who people are going to be impressed by the realization that apparently she's a scene stealer, practically steals the film, and she shot her entire role in 72 hours um, while she was in town for a press junket on uh, Spectre. So that's pretty crazy. That's impressive. Uh, You have... I forgot his last name or his first name. Last name is Ali, I think. Marshala Ali, I believe it is. Marshala yeah. Ali, yeah. Apparently, he's
1: Remy Danton
2: from House of Cards. Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah. So yeah, he. I love Remy. And ben- Benjamin Button too. He had a small role in that a couple oh, years yeah, ago. Oh yeah,
2: that's right. Was he the, was that. he the dad in that?
1: He was. He
2: was tiz- tiz- somebody tizzy.
1: living at the house with Taraji B. Henson.
2: Yeah, he wasn't like quote unquote the dad per se. Yeah, he was like around as a father figure I gotcha, for him. Yeah.
0: Yeah, and apparently, I mean, he's a scene stealer too, and so I've seen a lot of people bumping him into their supporting actor predictions as soon as those reviews dropped. And then, I mean, that could be a contender in cinematography. I know the film has been compared to a feature-length Frank Ocean music video. I think this could be big.
2: Yeah, I think so too. You know what I heard it may be our first real uh, I see, I see uh, didn't really work out, a uh, contender of the season. No, I heard that Wakefield opened up and didn't really get the reviews it possibly needed to get Cranston into the conversation. Uh, What did you guys hear on that?
0: I know Mike and I briefly went through a period of predicting, particularly after Nate Parker potentially dropped out from being a likely best actor winner. Cranston, you know, the Academy obviously loved him. Trumbo got decent but not great reviews and didn't come from a established distributor yet still walked easily to a nomination He has a lot of charm to go around. Yeah, Hollywood clearly loves the guy. Oh, yeah. He's a very well-respected actor.
1: He does a lot of TV work, so he knows a lot of people who cross over between the two mediums.
0: Yeah, it, it seemed like something on paper that could be a contender. And he clearly, you know, they love, Oscar loves a transformation. He got slathered up in a greasy beard and gained some weight, but... The Hollywood reporter liked him but it just it doesn't seem like anyone likes the film. What do you think, Mike? I
1: think if it's going to do anything, it'll be him for best actor and that's it. It's the type of performance that certainly seems showy enough on paper, but in execution, I think we're just going to have to wait and see.
2: Yeah, absolutely. A film that we didn't think was going to get a distributor this year, Amazon picked up Lost City of Z uh, as well. And so now that we know that that's definitely coming out, I mean, I'm not that excited for it, personally speaking. But, I mean, are you guys uh, pretty hyped about this one? I, I mean, I, I'll be honest with you, too. I really don't even know that much about it. I, I mean, I know, you know, I know that. What's his name? The the guy from Sons of Anarchy, Charlie. Um, Charlie Hunnam. Charlie Hunnam. Yeah, I know he's in it. And I know that it's being directed by um, James, uh, Gray. James Gray. Yep who the only film of his that i've ever really enjoyed was um the uh what was it the the one uh last the year immigrant? The, the, immigrant. the immigrant yeah yeah not not last year his last one which film. was one of my very favorite films of that year very underrated yeah but i mean he just seems very hit or miss for me and i'm looking at you know the rest of the cast and what like who's in this and what it's about i just don't know if this is really a contender per se
0: well, we had a trailer out for it a few months ago. Um, it, yeah, I think the fact Paramount dumped it and the fact it's just kind of floated around for a year or so suggests there isn't a lot of confidence in it. Mm-hmm. But Amazon's been interesting with the projects they pick. And I don't know, people love a good period piece. It's, I think it might get moved to 2017, honestly.
1: Yeah, I don't see it opening this year that late. But I'm very excited to see what he does with it because he's a he goes between different tones a lot of the time. And while the, he does have these different tones, a lot of his films are all New York-based. You have films like Little Odessa and We Own the Night, The Immigrant, which was two years ago. And this one seems very different for him. I believe it's an adventure set in the jungle, if I'm not mistaken.
0: Yeah, it's about an explorer who went missing in real life. Uh, back in, I think, the 1800s or early 1900s, searching for a mythical Latin American city, kind of like an El Dorado place. And the book is one of those narrative nonfiction pieces that tries to piece together exactly what happened to him. Because to this day, nobody knows. And that in itself is interesting, but it's the kind of thing that also could just come across as kind of a stuffy, generic period piece.
1: And not for nothing, it's being produced by Plan B Entertainment, which is a very well-regarded company run by Brad Pitt and Dee Dee Gardner. They are also doing Moonlight this year, as a matter of fact.
0: Yep Moon, uh, Pitt will get, a, he will get a nomination for Moonlight if it gets the Best Picture nomination, won't he?
1: Uh, unless there's some weird PGA rule, I think he will. And that's how he won his Oscar for 12 Years a Slave a few years ago.
0: Which makes me laugh, by the way, that he's still referred to his Academy Award nominee, Brad Pitt, in all the trailers, despite the fact he's been an Oscar winner for three years now.
1: I think a lot of people just simply don't realize that he has it.
0: Including the people who distribute his movies, apparently.
2: (laughs) Clearly. Uh, Speaking of uh, film distribution as well, uh, A Monster Call's date was being moved uh, from October to December 23rd. That must mean that the studio has a lot of faith in the film, that it's going to be a big player come Oscar season as well. I've been also hearing a lot of uh, mumblings about Felicity Jones in that one. And then also sticking on the theme of moving dates, uh, the Critics' Choice Awards decided to push their date uh, up to December 11th. So they were previously in January along with like the Golden Globes, but they want to have their show before. So, I mean, that, that to me is very interesting because you want to talk about um, how the Critics' Choice really pride themselves on being able to predict the Oscar winners, uh, as I've been hearing many, many times over the years. And so they, it looks like they not only want to predict the winners, they want to predict the nominees too, it seems like with this move. So... All that it to me is uh, pretty interesting to see, and you know, we've got a couple of other uh, little tidbits here. Uh, we'll just go through these ones really, really quickly. Uh, Sam Mendes uh, looking at James and the Giant Peach as his next directorial gig. Obviously, this is live action, not like the other version of the film was. What, and it's what do you Disney, got?
1: I believe, right?
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. So he joins the ranks of uh, of a Bill Condon doing Beauty and the Beast sort of uh, sort of a thing here. What do you guys think about uh, him as a choice for that?
0: I wish he would kind of get out of the um the studio or franchise trend he's been in cuz he's a very interesting director, but I did love that book as a little kid, so I don't begrudge it being made and he's always been somebody who can elevate average to below average scripts. I mean, yeah, he did the best he could even with Spectre. So I think he'll do that story justice.
1: Yeah. It's been well over 10 years since I saw the 1996 James and the Giant Peach, the stop-motion version. It's not that
2: good.
1: I don't really remember much about it, except it was this... It wasn't Tim Burton, I believe it was Henry Selleck. Yeah. And uh, a little strange and out there. But you know what? I wasn't expecting anything from Pete's Dragon a few weeks ago, a film I remember nothing about, the original Disney version. But that was really unbelievable to me, what... David Lowry did with it. So, you know what? If Disney's going to keep remaking some of their older properties and having bigger names come on, I'm fine with it if that's what they want to do. I'm willing to seek it out.
2: Yeah, no, that's, I mean, it's pretty cool to see uh, that Disney seems to be like settling into a groove with their live act, uh, live action adaptation. Cinderella, I thought, was also uh, pretty solid. I mean, realistically, when you look at it, only Alice in Wonderland has been like the real blunder for them so far as far as just making a quality movie goes <laughs> i think they
1: make remakes that at first you question why they're happening mm-hmm. but then when you see the finished product you go okay well there was enough here to make this retelling of the story worth it in a d- few
2: different ways yeah now i'm just waiting for my aladdin remake at some point I, no I know it's they can't do that oh they will try believe me
0: I, want, I mean, they're doing a live-action Lion King remake, whatever that means.
2: Uh, they're basically uh, taking John Favreau's characters from The Jungle Book, and they're just throwing them into the movie, probably. Which, is, in my, if
0: I'm not mistaken, is the definition of a CGI movie. So I'm wondering how exactly it's live-action.
2: Yeah, I don't know. Uh, another bit of news as well. Steve Carell, Brian Cranston, Lawrence Fishburne are set to possibly star in Richard Linklater's next film, *The Last Flag*, which is actually a sequel to *The Last Detail*, starring Jack Nicholson from a couple decades ago. There, I the mean, Hal
1: Ashby film.
2: Yeah, and you and ha, who just recently um, uh, as um, uh, even though he's no longer with us anymore, his birthday actually just recently passed. So it's pretty interesting that this news uh, just came out recently. I think that. Linklater pairing up with such big names here. I mean that to me doesn't I mean he's worked with big names before, don't get me wrong, but it just it just seems odd to me that he's being uh, offered or maybe possibly actors are coming to him for this property right now. It it, mu- it must be good, I suppose, if it's if it's uh, attracting the quality of actors that he's got here.
0: I think people really love Linklater too and particularly after well, I mean, the fact that Sundance produces, a like, it's what, three different Linklater documentaries in the last couple of years, mm-hmm. and especially after Boyhood put him on the map, I think he's someone kind of like Wes Anderson that a lot of actors want the chance to work with. Yeah. So it's kind of an unusual choice of subject matter for him, I guess, but I'm interested. That's a hell of a cast. It's been many years since I
1: saw The Last Detail, that I remember it's. Well regarded as a classic by a lot of film historians, Jack Is that the Randy Quaid one? Yes, Randy Quaid, uh, Jack Nicholson, and I'm blanking on who else is in it. But you know what? Maybe there's another story worth telling here. I believe this sequel is based on a book to uh, the original novel, The Last Detail. So we'll see what it has to do. I'm always excited by a new Richard Linklater film, and hopefully this one actually gets made and doesn't go the way of his Intended
0: Incredible Mr. Limpet remake. <laughs> Jeez, it, yeah. By the way, Randy Quaid is an Oscar nominee for The Last Detail. How do you feel about that? That's took me by surprise to learn the other day.
2: I don't feel anything. I'm numb. <laughs> and then last but not least, Ann Cotis, Jackie Chan, Frederick Wiseman, and Lynn Stallmaster all being awarded the honorary Oscars, which will take place at the Governor's Awards later on this year. How do you guys feel about the choice of winners for the awards?
0: You know, I love that honorary Oscars choose to acknowledge people who would never get attention otherwise, like Roger Corman in the past. So I'm just going to single out, as someone who grew up gleefully loving Hong Kong action films and Jackie Chan buddy cop comedies...
2: Don't forget the animated TV show.
0: I loved that as a kid. So seeing Jackie Chan as technically an Oscar winner is like all of my childhood dreams coming true.
2: I echo that statement. Mike? Yeah, so
1: I'm very excited to see this list of honorees. Anne V. Coates has been around for ages. She is an Oscar winner for film editing for doing Lawrence of Arabia, <laughs> which was 1962, and her most recent work was film editor for Fifty Shades of Grey.
2: That's, that's opposite ends of the spectrum there in terms of quality. <laughs> yes. She's still
1: with us. She's a groundbreaker in the field of film editing you don't see many film female film editors you know her uh film a schoonmaker so i think she's really worth honoring here jackie chan is an interesting addition i'm not really a huge fan of kung fu movies but i recognize his importance in the film universe so that's a nice addition Frederick Wiseman, who is a noted documentarian who, strangely enough, has never received an Oscar nomination.
2: Which is bizarre to me.
1: Yeah, he's very well regarded with the film community. His most recent film was In Jackson Heights, which I know a lot of people liked two years ago. Mm -hmm. But then finally, and I'm very interested with this one, Lynn Stallmaster, which is a name that most people don't recognize, is apparently an industry legend. He's a casting director who's been working since the 50s. Oh, wow. And I have a list of his films here that he's worked on, and it's really incredible when you read down the list, which I'll do for a minute. He has, I Want to Live from 1958, Judgment at Nuremberg, The Russians Are Coming, The Russians Are Coming, The Fortune Cookie, In the Heat of the Night, The Thomas Crown Affair, They Shoot Horses, Don't They, Fiddler on the Roof, Harold and Maude, Deliverance, Jeez. The Last Detail, speaking of what we were just talking about, Sleeper, Cinderella Liberty, Rhinoceros, starring the late Gene Wilder, Silver Streak again with Gene Wilder, Down for Glory, New York, New York, the Martin Scorsese film, Coming Home, Superman, Being There, Stir Crazy, and Tootsie. Good lord. Yeah, you
2: ain't kidding. My god.
1: And then that's not even including some of the work he did with Faye Dunaway later in her career. I believe he played a role in getting her Mommy Dearest, which, depending on how how you view that film, is either a blessing or a curse. (laughs) (laughs) Let's pretend that one didn't happen. But when you look at that list, which went on for a while, he really has some great credits there. And since there's no award for casting directors, having him in the bunch and having him get this honorary Oscar is really a nice addition.
2: They definitely need to add that award, seriously. That's that's for another conversation. That's for another show. Talking about a list of uh, awards that the Oscars could add to their show, and you know, li- li- like we can always take something away. Come on, like do we need? Uh, you know, th- like I said, we'll we'll talk about that another time. You know what? We
1: have 24 categories. Why not make it a 25? Why not? A right?
0: Nice why
2: not? Why not just add one more? Please.
0: I I I asked. Well, you I that. still want a stunt coordination category too, to be honest. Oh, uh, why? Because you want the Fast and the Furious series to be recognized? You know what? No. But like there are um, – I remember back in 2005, there was a bid for that and it almost passed. Um, and people – Entertainment Weekly did a big article about all the films that really deserve that. I think in an age where films are aggressively CGI'd now, it's more important than ever to recognize the films that still rely on doing things in camera. Uh, particularly since the visual effects category more and more has become best CGI than anything. But that's a discussion for another time.
2: Not to mention it's very much veered away uh, from blockbusters, I feel like, and they're really recognizing now visual effects being used for more uh, dramatic films nowadays, uh, more so than anything. Like I feel like years ago, it used to be that visual effects was the only category where blockbusters would get mentioned. And now a blockbuster is lucky if it gets mentioned in any category whatsoever. So, make of that what you will. It is now time, actually, for our first review here on the next Best Picture podcast. It is our first official kickoff for the 2016 Oscar race, for us at least, in terms of wide releases. And that is Derek C. and Franz's latest film, The Light Between Oceans. Let's View of the trailer dearest Isabel. I can't stop thinking about the time I spent with you dearest
0: Tom when I first saw you I felt like I knew you and I couldn't stop seeing my life with you to be loved by you <laughs> allowed me to feel again
1: <gasps> what can I do what should I do
2: She's a lovely baby, but you can't keep her.
1: She needs us.
0: We're not doing anything wrong. I know that you're going to be a wonderful father. For my dad, with love forever (laughs) and ever and ever and ever.
2: (laughs) What's your name? Lucy. Lucy. It's
0: lovely to meet you. Hi. My sister had a terrible tragedy. Her husband and their baby daughter were lost at sea. You would have been your girl's age by now. I
1: we'll have to tell people it's her mother.
0: I am her mother.
1: Someone knows that my girl is alive. You'll be safe. I'll protect you, I promise. we've done to her
0: it's too late
2: one day this will all feel like a dream
0: with love forever and ever and ever
2: okay so the light between oceans is directed by dark sea in france With a screenplay also by him as well, it stars Michael Fassbender, Alicia Vikander, Rachel Wise, Brian Brown, Jack Thompson, and the story goes as follows. A lighthouse keeper meets the daughter of the school's headmaster and is immediately captivated, and they are soon married and living on the island. Their happiness is marred only by their inability to start a family. So when a rowboat with a dead man and an infant girl mysteriously washes ashore, Isabel believes their prayers may have finally been answered. As a man of principle, Tom is torn between reporting the lost child and pleasing the woman he loves. All right, so let's start off with you first, Mike. What did you think of The Light Between Oceans?
1: I saw the trailer for this film a couple months ago and really didn't know what it was about until I watched it. And was surprised when I saw it, because Derek C. in France, his last two films, Blue Valentine and The Place Beyond the Pines, were very dark stories. I know Blue Valentine and Place Beyond the Pines to an extent were love stories, but this seemed a lot more in the Nicholas Sparks wheelhouse, which I don't mind. I love a sappy love story when it's done right. But then a couple days ago, when the film premiered at Venice, we started to see some negative reviews saying there is really no redeeming quality beyond the Nicholas Sparks element here. It was just sort of a sappy film, as some of the reviews suggested. So when I went into this, I was a little worried that it might not be as good as I was hoping. But I have to say, I really love this film. I thought it was very beautifully told. I think Michael Fassbender and Alicia Vikander really add so much to the material. But their great performances aside, Derek C. France really deserves a lot of credit for telling the story... In a way where he doesn't shy away from some of the darker details that you might see a director like Alassie Hallstrom, who does a lot of the Nicholas Sparks work, shying away from, Derek St. Francisco is willing to go to some areas that you're not expecting from time to time.
2: Okay. And well, Yeah, I was
0: kind of in the middle on this film. This was one that there was a lot I really liked about it. Um, I, like Mike, pretty much knew nothing about the film. I didn't even watch the trailer going into it. Um, And I want to say there were certain things, like Adam Archipaul blew me away with the film's visuals. Um, Desplat's score, he's always good. I thought it was a little forgettable. I think it was a film there was a lot I liked about, with good performances and excellent cinematography, but something just didn't quite click for me, particularly the third act.
2: Yeah, well, for the you know for the sake of argument here, like I think that Fastbender and Vikander both give strong performances. I'm not going to say very strong, and I'm not going to say best of the year caliber, but they're they're serviceable to the plot because Derek C. And Franz really asks a lot of them here in terms of. Just emotional complexity, drama, torture, uh, you know, not physical torture, but like just really ripping at the heartstrings here. And somebody needs to explain to Derek how to build to an emotional climax, because I feel like in his films, they're just so draining. I feel so emotionally drained when I watch his films because there's so much emotion packed into it that. With this film, it's the first time where that balance that he had, I felt, with Place Beyond the Pines and with Blue Valentine, it really, really started to teeter in the third act. When Rachel Weisz enters into the story and she starts impacting the two characters, the the, the film really starts to get, in my opinion, overwhelmingly cringeworthy. It really starts hamming it up in terms of the melodrama. And there's certain decisions and actions that are committed by the characters that I just found overly frustrating.
1: Oh, I'm in total disagreement there. Oh, well, why? I really enjoyed the first two-thirds of the movie, seeing Fassbender and Vikander fall in love and start to raise this child together. But then when Rachel Vice comes in in the third act, I can see why some people may be turned off by that, but I found it very compelling and tense at times. It almost reminded me of the... Edgar Allan Poe, Telltale Heart, where there's a secret that's being kept and it keeps getting bigger and bigger and they have to keep it from being exposed.
2: Okay. I
0: thought it was very suspenseful. I would say it was very scarlet lettery too. Sure, yeah. I I didn't mind Weiss coming in so much, but rather I felt like in the last 15 minutes her character went through some just dramatic changes back and forth, back and forth that didn't feel entirely
2: earned. Because they happened so rapidly. No, by, by the end of the film, I, I by the end of the film, I didn't even like any of the three main characters.
0: Well, they're not all likable people. But I think it wasn't just they weren't likable. They weren't like I think they're part of the reason Place Beyond the Pines worked despite its just beating emotional turmoil. Um, and I think the difference here, and this comes from someone who kind of liked the film, is that. With the exception of Fassbender, none of these characters were particularly interesting people. You know, Place Beyond the Pines, those were some fascinating multi-layered characters. I think Fassbender's character may have been somewhere on the autism spectrum when seeing him really learn to feel and relate to people was fascinating. But um, Weiss and uh, Vikander's characters just... I feel like we're defined by grief and little else.
2: I also felt I also thought both of them were kind of selfish. <laughs> Honestly, and that's that's where I think the part where I didn't like them uh, really started to come into play for me. Yeah, I mean, I I don't have to like
0: a character to be engaged, but they do need to be interesting.
2: Well, I mean, when they're the only characters in the movie, and the the whole movie centers around their emotional stakes and what their goals and desires are, and you get to a point where you don't care if they get what they want or not. But at a certain point in the film, all I was looking forward to was somebody's going to die, right? Someone's going to get hung. Someone's going to get murdered. So something's going to happen. You know, this, this, this character's going to wander off and accidentally get killed. Like, cause I just started getting to a point where I, I really, really, really needed some sort of a humongous emotional climax to Trump, everything else that came before it. And it, it's to, you know, because to me, that's what it felt like the film was building up to. But instead, we get this kind of whimpery, uh, kind of quiet, uh, you know, ending that I... Uh, it, it just didn't work for me, tonally speaking.
1: See, I wasn't thinking that it was going to build up to something tragic. As much as I loved the film itself, the way that it ends, there is a flash forward about 30 years. And I won't say who it features or what happens... I feel that was a little tacked on compared to what we had seen before.
2: Not to mention there's no effort to make the makeup look believable whatsoever. I, actually, I genuinely think, you know, this
0: film didn't have a high budget. I think that final scene, um, I think if it had been switched around and followed the book as I understand it, I'm not going to go into specifics, but the final scene features different characters than the book's final scene did and I think it would have been more impactful if the film had followed the book on keeping characters that it kept in the book for that final scene and I think as best I can tell we saw the makeup on certain characters that are featured in this flash forward was pretty weak and I think they literally wrote um, certain characters that were in the final scene in the book out so that they didn't have to show the makeup they used because then characters that weren't present in that scene were only featured in wide shots in bits of the flash-forward, and I think that negatively impacted what could have been an additional emotional oomph for the final scene.
1: That's interesting. but uh, Yeah, as much as that sort of ended on a whimper, it wasn't really enough for me to detract all the stuff I loved that came before it. And if I can, before we go on with this, I'd like to compare it to a film that came out a few years ago, that critics did not like at all. It was really beaten up, actually, but I found incredibly moving and well-made, and that movie is Labor Day.
2: Mm. Yeah, I am one of those people that beat up that film.
1: I could see why people think it's a simple story, but I think it's told with a lot of grace and has more on its mind than people may think originally. The performances, I think, are incredible.
2: If I could be fair for a minute, I do think that a lot of the critical bashing for that movie stemmed from the fact that it was kind of directed more so at Jason Reitman than anything, because a lot of people were a little salty on him after the fiasco of Up in the Air. Um, the, the next film that he did after that, which was um, the one with Charlie Starron. Young, you know, young Adult, Young Adult, kind of came and went. People didn't really pay attention. But then when like Labor Day came out, it was like, oh, Reitman really wants to get that Oscar, doesn't he? Wait, you know what, know what was I mean? the that, fiasco that, with Up in the Air? Uh, it was the adapted screenplay uh, oh, controversy. Yeah, losing that. yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, and even losing it too, um, there was like a, a credit dispute between him and the other screenwriter on that film, and it really, really threatened to uh, tear, tear, like tear it apart, essentially, and it, and it did. Um, they didn't end up giving them adapted screenplay as a result.
0: Mike on Labor Day, one thing I want to say contributing to our uh, festival feedback, I, I want us as we see all these festival reactions to remember Labor Day was divisive, but roughly 60% of its initial Telluride reviews were raves. With, um, I remember that. Yeah, so I, I, just something we should consider before we return to a review, that festival reviews tend to be hyperbolic, because Labor Day got called by some very respectable and intelligent people, a surefire best picture contender. So yeah, as we go into the season, let's remember that, because it went nowhere. But going back, tell us more about what you are saying about Labor Day.
1: Well, I genuinely love Labor Day without reservations. Actually, I think it—that was a 2014 film, right? Uh,
0: 2013. It was December okay, 2013. Yeah. It was yeah, weird because yeah. it
1: was like right towards the end. Okay, 2013. Yeah, that was pretty high up on my list of uh, the best films of that year. And I think it's told with more elegance than it's given credit for. And the same could be said about *The Light Between Oceans*. That, as I mentioned before, the dark places that it's willing to go to. Should not be discredited, and I really think C in France makes some bold choices here that people aren't praising him enough for.
2: Let me put it to you this way: I wouldn't mind watching the film again. I, uh, you know, if anything, just to look at Adam Arkapar's uh, beautiful cinematography oh, gorgeous. here. He's emerging as one of my favorite TPs. From the lighthouse out to the
0: ocean
1: that you see are just stunning.
0: That one of the gold over the ocean it just kind of sweeps over and the sunset has literally painted the ocean gold.
2: Oh, you mean the Lion King rip-off shot? <laughs> <laughs> that's, a, that's immediately what I thought of when that first opening shot of the title and it was the sunrise. I'm like, ah, it's a baby. And then the candor
1: and or Michael Fassbender comes out from the lighthouse holding the baby. Oh, God.
0: <laughs> it, it, is, it is astonishingly well shot and I think it's a shame that the film as a whole wasn't necessarily stronger because I think had it been, we could have been talking about Arcapal being a major contender in what's already going to be a very crowded category. Sure.
2: I still have them. I still have them in the bottom five, technically. Obviously as new contenders emerge, that'll change. But yeah, I think yeah, I have them sitting at number nine or 10 right now, if uh, my memory recalls. So there's a, there's always a chance you know with something like that. You never know. I mean, it could just be respect for the cinematographer alone. And at the end of the day here, I will walk away from this movie and I will say that its best feature is its cinematography. And maybe, maybe some voters will feel that same way as well. But I do respect the kind of painterly... You know, I'm with Mike with this a little bit.
0: I do respect the painterly way it did approach its story. I, and it presented an interesting moral dilemma... I think if the third act had been handled better it could have really been something because the slow burn nature of it was interesting. I mean the the dilemma in seeing how that decision uh, to deal with the baby really aided at Michael Fassbender was fascinating and I think if the characters yes. had been given a little more depth in the third act, had, I don't necessarily agree it needed a death or a tragedy, but just been handled in a way that felt a little more earned and real. I think this really could have been something.
2: And I respect C.N. Francis' decision to slowly take it along. And you know what's very interesting, too, and this really actually um, – I go back and forth on this a little bit here. The film is over two hours long. I feel like this is the kind of film that had it been released – um say i don't know 30 40 years ago this would be two and a half to three hours long and it would have an even slower pace than it even does now and i can i feel this way because i feel like there's a lot of scenes in the film that are edited almost in a montage style sort of way yeah to just show you the passage of time and while I respect that, because as an audience goer, you know sometimes you you do want to just get in and get out if the film isn't really meeting your standards. Um, I couldn't help but feel like there could have been more patience. Perhaps maybe we're not living in a time for that right now. Uh, but I definitely feel that years ago this would have been one of those two and a half to three hour uh, epic tragedy type films that would be getting. All the Oscar nominations in the world for you know all the major categories. Uh, like I said, we live in different times right now as it is, and our standards have changed. The longer film has been around, so we definitely view a film like this a little bit differently. As is though, I mean, it's all to me. It's old fashioned, um, and it's it's fine. It, it's it's okay. I don't think it's a. I don't think it's as disaster as many critics were kind of saying it was before its release.
0: I mean, it's, it's, it is technically positive on Rotten Tomatoes. I think people from the initial Venice reactions were too quick to call doom and gloom on it. It's not a bad film. I think more than anything, it's just disappointing.
2: Mm.
1: One of the things when you were talking about the montage that I wanted to bring up was that was the other small qualm I had with it, that in one scene when you're meeting Rachel Weiss's character, you learn about her and her family and then you see a montage of what we had just heard in dialogue. So that was one thing I think that could have been cut. But that's only a yeah. minute, maybe two minutes tops. So I get what you mean with the montages. But, and then when, Matt, you talk about that this would have been a two-and-a-half, three-hour movie a few years ago. Mm-hmm. Derek France in interviews has said that he was trying to go for a David Lean backdrop with a John Cassavetes story in the middle.
2: Okay, that you know what? If that was his goal, I, I will, I will say that he succeeded. He wanted
1: this small, intimate romance set against this vast uh, backdrop of Australia in this case. But you think of what David Lean did with the Lawrence of Arabia or something like that. And there's even a little Thomas Hardy mixed in there, far from the madding crowd. So I like what he was going for, even if some people don't think he achieved it. I hope everyone could recognize the ambition of the project, how it started out.
2: All right, so with that said, let's pass it off to final thoughts and uh, what number grade out of 10 you would give to The Light Between Oceans. Will, we'll start off with you first, man. Final thoughts and final grade.
0: Final thoughts, I kind of said this earlier. It's not bad. It's just not that great, but there is a lot to like about it. I'm going to say a 65 maybe, yeah, I'll say a 6.5 out of 10.
2: Okay.
1: All right. And for you, Mike? I don't need to praise this anymore. I really loved it for what it was, and it won't be for everybody, but if you're looking for a good cry, uh, bring your handkerchief with you. And uh, before I give you my grade, I will say a little controversial statement here. I think Michael Fassbender is better here than he was in Steve Jobs last year.
2: No. Uh, Shame on you.
1: I think this is the best Alicia Vikander has ever been. I think it's my favorite mm. performance of hers. Oh, Mike. And this proved to me that she's the type of movie star we don't really get anymore. She's this glamorous actress who has such range. You see an ex machina performance last year, and then you see something like this. She really proved to me here that she's more than I thought.
2: She still can't do an American accent, though. I saw Jason Bourne. I can testify to this.
1: Yeah, well, I can't speak to that. But going from what I saw here, she uh, impressed me a lot. And finally, Rachel Weiss who I've always gone back and forth on. I know she has an Oscar, but some people tend for, to forget that she has it.
2: Yeah, that's true. I
1: think she's really incredible here, and she's having a very good year.
2: You know, initially when we were doing our predictions, I thought that she could be a contender possibly for this. She won't be. No. But I, I think that she's serviceable as well.
1: Well, we'll have to talk about Denial in a few weeks, which could be something out of the Toronto Film Festival. Yeah, But just speaking of this film, I think she was incredible, along with Fassbender and Vikander. And as for my grade, get ready for everyone, I'm going to give Light Between Oceans a 9.
2: Wow. I'm going to have to compare that score to all the scores on Rotten Tomatoes and see if anybody has given this thing a 9. I'm sure there is. It was
1: a New York Times Critics' Pick this week. Was it really? Yes, it was.
2: They they, they must really want Derek uh, to be able to make more movies because they're trying to get people to go out and see it.
0: Well, there wasn't a lot of competition, you know, for Critics' Pick of the Week, though. I mean, what else are you going to give it to this week? It's the Critics' Pick
1: and our friend Rex Reed gave it a four-star review. So take of that what you will.
2: Like I was saying before, and this is playing into my final thoughts here as well, this is an old-fashioned kind of mm-hmm. film, and I feel like if you really like those big, sweeping, romantic epics, um, th- this isn't necessarily like on that level of scale, but in terms of the human heart and the emotional complexity that these characters are going through, this is an epic film. Uh, they go through a wide range of, of um, you know of, of emotions here and there's there's just so much from like you were saying before about Fassbender's inability to really feel people post World War One he falls in love with this woman and it kind of happens very quickly might I add. um but he really lets his guard down and really learns how to feel again and then. Uh, his his wife Alicia Vikander she learns how not to feel ultimately or maybe she's feeling it all too much and then she becomes an emotionally distraught wreck. But either way, I thought that that was interesting that the two kind of shifted in that in that way. But Fassbender's code of ethics here and what his moral code is it really was the fascinating part of the movie for me and is what is also the driving factor of the story in terms of what they do with this baby when they find it uh, upon the uh, shore there. So I, I definitely admire a lot about this film. I just don't think that whether it be because of the source material or whether it be because it's just something something that and France is trying to go for here in terms of the just the tone and the pacing of the film it just doesn't seem to work fully for me. And I'll tell you, that third act really, 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 really pushed me. I mean, it really did, truthfully. So I'm going to give this uh, uh, probably the lowest grade of all. I'm going to give this one a 5 out of 10. Um, last thing I just want to say really quickly, and maybe I'll get a little bit of disagreement here as well. I found just blot score, while beautiful, to be obtrusive at times. So make of that... What you will, I don't think he'll be nominated for this score, even though I quite enjoyed it.
1: Well, he has a million others in contention. Too. Yeah, he's
0: got American Pastoral and even Star Wars. And Florence Foster which, Jenkins. Yeah, it's oh, yeah, pretty good work in that too. He's always great, and he never does a bad score. But as as Monument showed, Monument's Men showed a good score can be used poorly within a film. And I think um, you could argue that maybe in this case. I found the score just more forgettable than anything as post-intrusive. But I see what you're going to there.
2: Yeah. All right. Well, with that said, guys, uh, this will pretty much conclude our first episode for the next Best Picture podcast. Yay! So that's really exciting. Um, Do you guys have any final thoughts? Uh, Anything uh, you guys want to just quickly just shout out and say at all uh, before we wrap it up here?
0: Uh, we for, I forgot to mention with La La Land that if it does become our picture and director frontrunner, uh, Damien Chazelle will be the youngest Best Director winner in cinematic history, which would be pretty cool.
2: That would be awesome. That would be oh, that'd be great. You know what, Marty, step aside. Let, let let's make that let's make that happen. <laughs> I you know speaking of which, uh, Silence has been reported to be over three hours long, and I know that I've been talking to some people. A lot of people feel like this is going to be like the death nail for this film. I say bring me as much Scorsese as you want. I love Martin Scorsese. I think he's our greatest living American director. So I don't care if the movie is 13 hours long. <laughs> Just bring it on. I'm I'm fully ready for this.
1: I'm with you. I'm ready to see it. Well, I'm glad we were able to talk about the festivals and everything going on this week. It was definitely a busy week in our film world, and I'm excited to... See what happens at Toronto this coming week and what we have going on later in the season.
2: Absolutely. There's a lot to come from nextbestpicture.com, including updated Oscar predictions, some more polls, reviews are going to be cycling in more and more and more as the time moves on. I'm also working on a series of top 10 lists right now from respective past film years right now. Of course, that's going to be my own top 10 lists. Uh, So sorry, guys, got to leave you out on that one for the time being. But I just felt compelled to write something here or there. And then also to a lot more blog posts uh, as we comment on the award season as as it all strolls along I want to thank you all for our making nextbestpicture.com uh, really a success right away uh, you know and we've only been up now for about four days actually as the time of this recording and already the reaction the feedback and you know the traffic thank you has been spectacular so thank you thank you thank you once again Michael thank you Will thank you everybody have a nice one